Good morning, church. How many of you all had a good Thanksgiving? Well, that's cool. I hear applause for Thanksgiving very often. That's great. Very good. Well, I, um, I pray that it was a sweet time for you, and uh, if it was a challenging time for whatever reason, I pray that you were able to find what's always available to us in every circumstance, and that's a fresh opportunity to trust the Lord. And today, as we move into the Christmas season, I want to encourage you to open your heart wide to whatever God wants to say to you this morning as a way of preparing you to celebrate the birth of his son. And for centuries, the church has set aside several weeks each year where we simply concentrate, learn from, and grow in our understanding of Jesus Christ through the celebration of his birth. And we want to start that today. I want to call your attention to a passage of Scripture in the Old Testament book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 9. And so if you have your Bibles, you can be turning there, and we are going to look at a very familiar passage of Scripture. If you've never even read it in your Bible, you have probably heard it in song, especially this time of year, and you'll be familiar with the words. The book of Isaiah is written by a man who, in chapter 6 of Isaiah, was called by God to take a message of warning and prophecy of a different future to the people of Judah as well as the people of Israel. And he was told in advance that his assignment to preach this message of warning and message of hope He was told in advance that when he preached that message, no one was going to respond. That throughout the conduct and course of his ministry in Israel, that the nation as a whole would not be responsive to him, and he was told that in advance. How would you like an assignment like that from the Lord? How many of you love the book of Isaiah? Those of you who've read through your Bibles and you've read through that book, It's a precious book filled with prophecies of the coming of Jesus, and this is one of them that we're going to be looking at. When you get to chapter 7 of Isaiah, uh, the northern kingdom of Israel, you know, it was divided after the time of Solomon. The northern kingdom fell into idolatry very rapidly, and they partnered with another uh, enemy, the people of, of Samaria, and they partnered together of Syria, and they partnered together to attack Judah. And everybody was afraid, and God told Isaiah, don't be afraid of what these people are doing. They are not listening to me. Uh, they, are, they are worshiping other gods. They are making alliances with other nations, putting their trust in political and military man-made things instead of trusting me. He says, don't be afraid of them. When you get to chapter 8, the world's getting even to become a darker place. The people of the north are falling deeper and deeper into idolatry and the occult, uh, trying to conjure the dead, and and the world is getting darker. People are without hope. Uh, Parts of the northern part of the kingdom have already been uh, conquered by Assyria. They have been enslaved, and that territory no longer belongs to Israel. And the world is just becoming an awful place in which to live. There's no hope. Nothing but darkness 
on the horizon. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt what it's like to be completely hopeless? To see nothing ahead but darkness? And you say, Pastor, I'm experiencing that right now. For some people, for whatever reason, holidays and family gatherings and Thanksgivings and Christmases and those kinds of things only magnify the intense hopelessness that lives in the hearts of some people. And you may be experiencing that. You know, with all the the celebrations and the traditions that we have, it's so easy for you and me to forget the core truth, the core reality that we're celebrating. Jesus Christ and his coming into this world. And so as we come to these verses in chapter 9, everything is about to change. And he's moving from these prophecies of the destruction of Israel, which is about to happen in just three years, the total destruction of the northern kingdom. And, and he's moving from these dark prophecies and descriptions of terror and hardship and, and just horrendous, ugly things. And then we come to chapter 9, verse 1. Listen to what he says. If your world is dark and your life lacks meaning, there's a word of hope here. Verse 1, nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her. Look at that phrase. The gloom will not be upon her who is distressed. As when at first he lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. This is the area near Galilee where Jesus would grow up. And, and that was the first territory that was lost when Israel and Judah were invaded in about 733 B.C. Very first territory that was lost. It had happened about eight years before he wrote these words. And he said this gloom that they've been experiencing will not be upon them. And, uh, and then he says, and afterward more heavily... Um, as when at first he lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterward more heavily oppressed her by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan in Galilee of the Gentiles. And so he says in verse 1, this gloom that was been there because they've been conquered and the world is so dark and terrible, it's going to lift. Now listen to verse 2. The people who walked in darkness, these very first people that lost everything, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in the land of, sh- of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. You have multiplied the nation and increased its joy. They rejoice before you according to the joy of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. Why the rejoicing? Verse 4. For you have broken the yoke of the burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor as in the day of Midian. You remember what happened to Midian? When Gideon, with just a few people, in a surprising way, experiences huge victory. And he says, that's what's going to happen to these people. For every warrior's sandal from the noisy battle and the garments rolled in blood will be used for burning and fuel of fire. All the The fighting, all of the threats, all the hostility is going to be brought to an end. Now what he's doing is he's been talking about how Israel is going to be destroyed and Judah is going to be destroyed. And then suddenly he looks about 700 years into the future and he sees something different. 
And it's one of the many prophecies of the coming of Jesus that you can find in Isaiah. 700 years before his birth. This is one of them. How is this going to get done? How are these people who are in darkness going to see a great light? How is this going to happen? Well, God's answer to everything that darkens and threatens your life is a child. Listen, verse 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Now, there's so much we could say, but we want to focus on some things uh, pretty quickly. Notice what's being taught here. The people in darkness have seen a great light. And, and this great light turns out to be a child that's going to be born in the future. A son who's going to be given. And all of those phrases are loaded with prophetic um, truth and interest in Jesus Christ. And he's going to be a ruler. The government's going to be on his shoulders. But here's what I want you to see this morning. And his name will be called. And his name will be called. Now, God had a name for him already. If you go back a couple of chapters when the virgin birth is prophesied, it says his name will be called Emmanuel. His name shall be called Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. It's an amazing prophetic statement. And then when the angel appeared to Mary in Luke, he said that she was going to have a baby. It was going to be a miraculous event, a virgin birth. And the Holy Spirit was going to help her conceive. And she was going to bear a son. And he was to be called. He he was given the name He was to be called Jesus. Jesus. So these are the names that God had for his son. And what's really interesting here is what he's saying is the people have seen a great light. And as they encounter this child, they're going to have different experiences with him. And as they experience this child, the consequence of that experience is they're going to call him a name. Now, this is not all particularly unusual. Uh, we do that as we get to know people. We often give them new names. I was in a church once, the very first church I ever served. The fire chief in our community, his first name was Doodle. I mean, imagine calling on Doodle to pray, keep a straight face. We had a retired minister in the church, and he helped out a lot. His first, his nickname, I don't know what his first name was. His nickname was Pee-wee. Brother Pee-wee, would you pray for us? Nobody smiled, nobody laughed, because that was their nicknames from childhood. The things we do to each other. And, and the way God reveals himself to us is through our experience of him. And then when we experience him, 
Then we come to know him for the last several weeks, the staff and I, preparing for some things we're going to be doing in January and February, have reviewed some of the basic concepts of a study course called Experiencing God that was penned by Henry Blackaby about 25 years ago. And one of the premises of that book is that God wants us to know him, not just about him, but he wants us to know him through our experience of him. And as we experience him, what you see in the Old Testament over and over again, as people experience God, the way they, they, they experienced him typically resulted in them giving God a name. He is the God who provides for me. He is the God who takes care of me. He is the God who fights for me. He is the God who heals me. All of these names in Hebrew, Jehovah this, Jehovah that, come from individual experiences of people with God who is revealing himself to them through their experience. Well, that's what Isaiah is talking about. He says, his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And it's not that, that God is informing us these things. He's saying that as people encounter the sun, they see a great light. As they encounter the sun, there are these truly Christmas lights, these other things that people see about him. And there's so much to know about him. But when we think about Christmas, there are at least these four things, these four ways that God wants to reveal himself to you. And today we want to take up the first one, wonderful counselor. We want to talk about what it means when the Bible says that when you experience Jesus, you will call him wonderful counselor. Now it's a combination of words. Uh, most uh, scholars and Bible interpreters put these words together in, um, in hyphenated ways. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. And so the word wonderful, if you think of the word wonder in terms of miracle, in terms of something that creates awe in people, this is the first part of it. And what's causing this awe, what's causing this wonder, what's creating this sense of the miraculous? Well, it is his counsel. It is his counsel, his wisdom, the insight that he brings to you and to me. The skill of giving wise advice, making plans, and giving counsels behind this word counselor. So whenever he counsels and he directs you and me and he is in charge, miracles happen, change takes place, the supernatural is seen, and God is known by us. Now the New Testament gives us two basic uh, truths about Jesus as a wonderful counselor that I think you and I should grab hold of. Here's one in Colossians 2.3, listen, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, talking about Jesus. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are in Christ. There is nothing that I must know in order to live, in order to be obedient, in order to please God and serve him that is not in Jesus Christ. In fact, all knowledge, all wisdom is in Christ. And then the other thing we need to hang on to is 1 Corinthians 2.16 that says, we have the mind of Christ. It is a stunning statement. And because of this, this is what Jesus was getting at in John 10.10 when he said, the thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. He has a will for you, wisdom that you want and desperately need 
so that you can have the best life available to you on this side of heaven, an abundant life. So many times we have the idea that that God's will is out there and my will's out there and a bunch of other wills are out there and I just sort of cherry pick what I want and put the best combination together and I can create the best kind of life for myself by making my own decisions. Not so according to the scripture. He says if you draw on that kind of wisdom, on that kind of approach, you're going to be hindered in knowing the, the truth about Jesus that he is a wonderful counselor. Let me share with you briefly three hindrances to knowing Jesus as wonderful counselor. Three hindrances to knowing him as wonderful counselor. Here's the, here's the first one. Wrong counselors. Listening to wrong counselors is the first and greatest hindrance to knowing Jesus as a wonderful counselor. Uh, Jesus had uh, talked about how the thief comes to, does not come except to steal, to kill, and to destroy. And I must come to a place where I believe that his counsel is best for me, that his direction, his purpose is best for me, that his love for me is, is unspeakably deep and wide and infinite, and that I can count on him not to mess my life up, and that if I trust any other counselor, it's going to mess me up. The thief has come to steal and kill and destroy Do I believe that about all the other possible sources of counsel that are available to me? You know, the world is a whole system of of decisions already made for you and me. And I don't have to pray. I don't have to seek the Lord. I can just default to what the worldly wisdom is. And and I will miss out. And I'll not experience him as a wonderful counselor. So wrong counselors are one of the great hindrances to knowing Jesus is a wonderful counselor. There's a second hindrance. Seeking his counsel for some things and not everything. Seeking his counsel for some things but not everything. For example, we tend to think of seeking God's will in vocational decisions. Uh, I've got a job offer. Am I going to take this offer or not? Am I going to go this direction or that direction? Vocational decisions. And between those vocational decisions, we don't think much about the will of God. And so that becomes a hindrance to us, seeking him for some things but not everything. Uh, I tell you, this is a problem for older people, and I'm talking about myself. You know, we think that seeking the will of God is primarily an occupation for young people because they have major vocational decisions to make. But once I've worked all that out, once I've gotten married, once I've gotten the job and my career and my direction, I don't have to worry that much about the will of God. The truth is, the truth is, not not being preoccupied with what God wants me to do with my life, but becoming preoccupied with what God wants me to do today. And a hundred decisions that I have to make today as I interact with people, as I, as I make decisions about what I'm going to do in the next hour, or the, this afternoon, or tonight, I, I need to be concerned about the will of God all day long. But if I seek his counsel only for some things and not everything, I will not experience Jesus as a wonderful counselor. I can't tell you how many times. I know many of you have the same kind of testimony where... I feel prompted 
intuitively a sense that I'm supposed to do something or go see someone or go call someone or send someone a note. Happens all the time. And, and often I discover why. Because at that moment, it was the right moment. Prompted to go see someone, prompted to go call someone, and it turns out to be a very significant moment. I don't always tell them, God told me to call you. God told me to come by. But, but he prompts us that way. Have you made any decisions today? Have you made any decisions today? Well, sure you have. You've made a bunch of decisions. And the mistake we make and that keeps us from experiencing Jesus as a wonderful counselor is to think he's only interested in the big stuff. Let me give you a third hindrance. The belief that he is hiding his will from you is a hindrance. I mean, the very way that we phrase it, now I'm not going to condemn anyone here for using the phrase, how can I discover or find the will of God, because I use it all the time. But there's a problem with that statement, is it can cause you and me to believe that somehow God is hiding his will from us. Now, do you think about that, how ridiculous that is, that God says, I have a will for your life, and what I want you to do is to discover it, but I'm not going to tell you what it is. I'm going to hide it like a great big green Easter egg out in tall grass, and you've got to go figure out, and if you don't figure it out, you're in big trouble. Now, how would that be if I did that as a dad to a little kid? I want you to do my will. Okay, Dad, what do you want me to do? No, you have to guess. And if you don't figure out, son or daughter, what, what I want you to do, then you're going to be in big trouble. And we would say that's ridiculous. See, the issue is not that you and I need to find or discover the will of God. Listen, in the things that I'm going to share with you, what you're going to find out is that God's will typically finds you. God's will finds you. And your decision at that moment is to obey. So getting preoccupied with this idea of discovery or finding counselor. Now here's what I want to do um, for the next few minutes. I want to call your attention to a passage of Scripture that I believe can help you today experience Jesus as a wonderful counselor. It's found in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. And I want to read this for us. By the way, we're studying the book of Romans on Thursday morning in our men's Bible study. We have a great breakfast, great fellowship. I invite you guys to come. We're in chapter 8. We're going to finish chapter 8 before Christmas. And, um, and then we'll, uh, we'll see what God does in the spring. But you're invited to come. Romans chapter 12. We're not there yet on Thursday mornings, but we are on Sunday morning. Verse 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Now look at that last phrase of verse 2. That you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. In the study of, of language, we call that a purpose clause. And it's not a guess that it's a purpose clause. It's actually written in a such a way 
the original language, it's a purpose clause. And it's giving you the purpose for doing these things that Paul has just said you should do. And he's saying that if you do these things, you do these things so that you might discover, if you want to use that word, or recognize the will of God. So hearing God right away, we begin to understand, is an acquired ability, but we can grow in this. And, um, and if I do these things, I can know the will of God. If I don't do this, I mean, if I flip it around, if I don't do these things, I am not going to have the ability to recognize the will of God, and I will not experience Jesus Christ as wonderful counselor. Now, what Paul tells us is that there are three parts to experiencing Jesus as a wonderful counselor, to making decisions, and where he is in charge, and he's calling the shots. Let me give you three words, and you can jot these down, but here are three words to the process. And if you're, in, if you're right now making a decision that's going to be impacting your life, uh, I believe this is something you would want to know. Here are three words. Number one, presentation. And this is what you do before any decision. We'll see this. Presentation. The second word is transformation. This is what you do between decisions. This is what you do between decisions. And the last one is recognition. And this is what you do during a decision. The three words are presentation, transformation, and recognition. Let's talk about the first word, First, presentation. What you do before any decision. He says in verse 1, he says, I'm telling you based on the first 11 chapters of Romans, based on all that God has done for you, I'm telling you, come and present your bodies as a living sacrifice. This is a picture of a priest who comes and brings an offering and sets it on an altar where it is consumed by fire. And, and when it's put on that altar... I am relinquishing control of that sacrifice, and it is totally committed to God, totally under his control, totally now belonging to him. And what's really important is how practical Paul is at this point. Sometimes we think of finding the will of God in terms of intuitive and, and um, in terms of uh, uh, things that are ephemeral, hard to understand, very difficult to comprehend. He makes this really easy. He says, give your body to God. Give your body to God. And of course, when you give your body to God, you're giving your hands to God, you're giving your feet to God, you're giving your eyes to God, you're giving your lips to God, you're giving your mind to God, you're giving your soul to God, everything that's contained in your body, all of that is given to God when you give him your body. Now, I want you to notice the sequence. Before you know the will of God, before you can recognize the will of God, he says you've got to first present your body to God, completely giving up control of yourself, your life, your body, to him under his control. Now, we don't like to do decisions that way, do we? We don't. You say, what do you mean, Pastor? Well, a friend calls you up this afternoon says, hey, I see David back there. Hey, David. Hey, David, I got a favor I, I want to ask you to do for me. 
And there's a pause, and David says, well, what is it? What is it? The friend says, what? Don't you trust me? He says, I'm not about to do anything and say yes to what you're asking me to do unless I know what it is. And that's what we do with the Lord so many times. God, you tell me what it is you want me to do, and I'll pray about it. I'll think about it, and I'll decide whether or not I'm going to do it. But that's not at all what Paul's teaching here, is it? He says, no, if you want to experience Jesus as a wonderful counselor, if you want to know the wisdom of God and the decision and the direction of God, you've got to first come and with nothing held back, give your body to God, all that you are, you decide ahead of time that I belong to God and whatever God wants me to do, that's all I need to know. There's no recognition of God's will without presentation. And one of the reasons you and I could become so frustrated in trying to know the will of God is that we've never come to a place where we've surrendered ourselves to that will in advance. I used to pray with a man years ago. And one of the things he used to pray, uh, almost every time we prayed together, is God, whatever you want today, whatever you have for me today, the answer is yes. And he'd tell the Lord that every day when he prayed. Whatever you have for me, whatever you want for me today, the answer is yes. Before even knowing what God wants, the answer is yes. And so if there's a key or a secret to knowing God's will, it's this. Presentation comes before recognition. And so that's our first word. Say yes in advance. Presentation. There's a second word. Transformation. Transformation. And this shows up in verse 2. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. I love the words that are here. Now that word, don't be conformed to this world, we talked about that earlier because the world is like a set of predetermined answers to every problem you have. It has a set of directions and guidance for how to conduct your life. When you're this age, this is what you do. When you're this age, this is what you do. And, uh, and it's all sort of mapped out for us. And what does he say about that world system of values? He says, don't be conformed. What does that mean? It means to be pressed into a mold. Don't be pressed into a mold. God made you unique. God has a purpose for your life that is unique. Even in the body of Christ called Wind Baptist Church, you have a purpose here that is unique, that no one else can fulfill. God does not do cookie-cutter Christians. We are all different. We are all unique. But the world would make us all the same and put you and press you into a mold. He says, don't be conformed to this world, but instead what? Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, that word transformed, you, you need to know is, is the same word that, that underlies this, uh, the English word metamorphosis. And morph means structure. It talks about a skeleton. And meta means change. And, and it describes the process by which a caterpillar morphs or metamorphs into a butterfly. Did you know one of the early symbols for Christianity was a butterfly? I mean, we know about the fish, don't we? But the butterfly was one of the ancient symbols for Christians because of the transformation that takes place when the Holy Spirit comes to live inside us. He changes us from the inside out. He says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed. And then he tells us how. How are you transformed? You know, some of us have the idea that the way that I'm transformed 
is at the end of a worship service, I go and I have a catastrophic encounter with God on my face at the altar, and there's nothing wrong with that. And God may be working in your heart that way, but listen to me. Transformation is a process that involves your mind, the renewing of your mind. One of the things I hate when I turn on my computer is when it starts telling me I need to update something. How many of y'all love to do updates on your computer? You need to update this. You can't even turn on your phone. And it says you have all of these updates to these little programs that are on there. And why do you have to do an update? Well, sometimes, once in a while, it's very rare, it's because the update's going to give you a better version of what you had in terms of what it's supposed to do. But more often than not, if you read why you're doing the update, it's because there's an error, there's a flaw in the existing program. Not because it's going to be better, but so that it doesn't break. I mean, one of the earliest things we learned years ago in computer programming was the program was what made the computer special. The computer's just a hunk of metal without the program. And if the program's not good, whatever you're trying to do with it's not going to be any good. We, we had a word for it. You all know what it is. G-Jo. Remember that? G-Jo? Garbage in, garbage out. Garbage in, garbage out. Now, the problem is that sometimes, many times, when you and I are making decisions, if we've not gone through presentation, if we have not been feeding on God's Word, when the time comes to make a decision, we have been fed so much garbage that we're likely to make the wrong decision. So what does it mean to renew your mind? It means to take God's Word and to read it, to think about it, to study it, to meditate on it, listen to it, Show up when there's preaching. Show up when there's Bible study. Immerse your mind, saturate your mind in the Word of God. That's what you should be doing between your decisions. The problem typically comes is we get ready to make a decision, and then we start reading the Word of God. And, and I'll tell you how it typically works. I hate to say I've even done this. It goes like this. Anybody ever done that? I'm ashamed to admit it. All right, don't, don't do it that way. That's not how it's supposed to work. Anyway, transformation. The bottom line is you and I need to reprogram our minds. The more we expose our minds to the Word of God, this transformation in the original language is passive. So as I renew my mind with the Scripture, God is doing something to my mind, and I begin to think differently. I begin to see things differently. I begin to feel differently as my mind engages the Scripture more and more and more. And there's a mystery to this. The transformation is not necessarily my doing, but the renewing of my mind is something I can do. And so transformation is a key. We've got to reprogram the mind. So those are the first two words, presentation, transformation. Here's the third word, recognition. Recognition. This is what you do during the decision. And we come to that last phrase that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. This is saying that God reveals his will and you can know it. And that if you're engaged in presentation and transformation, then you will be able to recognize the will of God when you need to. 
And uh, it is not God hiding it from you. God chooses to reveal it to you. Now, let me give you three more words under this, this heading of recognition. Now, there's three things, I think, practically that I found helpful over the years in making decisions that I think will encourage you in terms of recognition. Recognition. Here's the first word, desire. Desire. I can't tell you how many times I talk to people who are praying about the will of God. And, and I say, what is it that you want to do? I said, well, pastor, if I want to do it, it can't possibly be God's will, could it? They say, well, I'm I'm praying about taking a job over here, this other place. I say, well, do you want to do it? Well, no, I don't want to do it, so God must be in it. I mean, that's the kind of ways that we think. We, we, We don't trust our desire. And yet there's scripture abounds with teaching like Psalm 37, 4 that says, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. In Philippians chapter 2, he says, Therefore, my beloved, this is Philippians 2, 12 and 13, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, listen, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. If I'm working out my salvation with fear and trembling, does that sound like presentation? If I'm working out my life, recognizing that, that the Lord lives in me, and he has a will for me, and I'm doing that with fear and trembling, do you think that's a person that's, that's presented their body to God? Well, sure. He says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? For it is God who works in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. And the word will there means desire. So when you are surrendered to him, you've got to remember, when I talk about recognizing God's will, it comes after you have presented your body to God after you've saturated and engaged the scripture, your mind with scripture, and at that point, what is it that your heart wants? And he says, God works in you both to will or to desire and to do the ability to do his good will. So don't be afraid of desire if you've done the other two things. Second word. Opportunity. Opportunity. Recognizing God's will because suddenly there's an opportunity in front of you. We call it open doors, open windows. Um, We use lots of different expressions to describe circumstances and how circumstances unfold. And as we look at those circumstances, it seems to be a confirmation that God's will is apparent. And uh, if there's no opportunity, my desire may be there, but if there's no opportunity to do what it is that I want to do, then I'm either being called to wait or I'm just wrong. And we have to have a good dose of humility as we go on this journey, don't we? Remember, the burden on revealing his will is on God. And when you need to know, you will know. I find that when God is working in the opportunity, everything falls in place. I don't have to force it. I don't have to make it happen. Stuff just happens. And, and everything that needs to happen in order for the way to be open, for me to do whatever it is he's calling me to do, it comes together. And I don't have to force it. I don't have to fight it. So opportunity is important. The third word is peace. The third word I want to give you and leave you with is peace. God, I'm reaching a conclusion. Lord, I've given you my body, my life. I've spent weeks 
searching your word and, and filling my mind. I've spent a lifetime, months, whatever it is, uh, being transformed as you teach me things and as I'm learning things through your word. And so now it appears that this is your will. Best I understand it. I want to do it. Uh, the opportunity is there. But Father, if I am wrong, I need you to stop me. Father, if this is not right, I want you to unsettle me. I want to know clearly and absolutely that this is your will. Now, how does he do that? One of the great ways he does that is through a thing called peace. Peace. You'll hear older Christians talk about this, say, I have a peace about that, or I don't have a peace about that. What are they talking about? Well, he's talking about a work of the Holy Spirit. When a person becomes a Christian, they put their trust in Jesus Christ to forgive their sins and to change them by coming to live inside them. The Holy Spirit comes in. And he begins to change us. And one of the ways he guides us is through this experience of settledness or unsettledness or peace or no peace. In John chapter 14, verse 26, Jesus said, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. He's going to guide you. And then in the very next verse he says, Peace I leave with you. Who is the peace? The Holy Spirit. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. And so part of the task of the Holy Spirit is to be for you all that Jesus would be if he were here in person. You could sit down with him and say, Jesus, what is it do you want me to do? And as you and I cultivate that relationship with Jesus, we discover he is a wonderful counselor. Paul talks about this peace in Colossians 3. He says, and let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called. Let the peace of God rule. What is he saying? Well, he's not talking about um, a peace of God in the sense of uh, the peace that we have when we're saved, and I'm not fighting God anymore, and so I, I have peace with God. He's talking about something that you experience. He says, let the peace of God rule in your heart. Literally, that word means to umpire or referee in your heart. And so as you're making a decision, you may have presented yourself to God. You may be feeding regularly on his word. You may be recognizing this great opportunity that's in front of you. You may want to do it. But as you sit down to pray about it, as you sit down to think about it, there's something in your heart that is not right. And you're not at peace. You are unsettled. And at that point, I wouldn't take another step. Years ago, um, when the, we had our first two little ones, uh, I got it in my mind that, that my wife was shut up in a one-bedroom apartment with two little girls she would really benefit if she had this new piece of technology called a video cassette recorder, VCR. They were fairly new at the time, and, but you could get tapes with, with entertaining things on them that kids like to watch. And they would sit there, dumbfounded before the television, watching these things on non-digital analog screens. And it worked. But there was educational value. We could watch movies about Jesus and stuff. That's what I thought. 
And so I thought this would be really a, t- a tool. And we were using video as a tool in the church that we were at in many ways for teaching and all kinds of things. So I thought this would be a great resource. This would be a great tool. I, I went to the store and, uh, and I told Gail, I think we need to do this. And, you know, whatever husband, you know, she's always sweet that way. And I go to the store and I'm thinking, you know, Lord, um, this would be such a good thing. And I go and I, I can't afford to just buy it, so I need to finance it. And, man, I don't even know if they'll give me any credit at the store. Well, they gave me the credit. So suddenly I had this opportunity, desire, and I certainly love the Lord Jesus. We were out in California on the mission field. I mean, only people who love Jesus do that, right? And, and, so, and so I buy this thing on time, on credit, and I go home with it. I set it up. And all the while, in the back of my mind, in the back of my heart, there is this feeling of dis-ease. Uh, something's not right. Dread, discomfort, whatever word you want to come up with, I would call it a lack of peace. I went and told a friend at church that we'd bought this VCR. He said, well, how did you buy that? I said, I bought it on time. He said, you did what? Now, that's all he said. But that was the last straw. I went back and told my wife, I'm sorry, we can't keep this thing. And I packed it back up in the box. I took it back to the store. They released me from my obligations. They took it back. They canceled the purchase. And I felt so good when I got through. I had a peace about that. I had a peace about that. I felt good. That was about September or so. In December, a relative gave us one. Gave us one. He is a wonderful counselor. He is a wonderful counselor. He desires that this time of year that you would experience him as a wonderful counselor. Not just for the rest of your life, but for the rest of today. Would you bow your head and close your eyes with me as we enter this time of response? I want you to think through the process for knowing Jesus as a wonderful counselor that we explored in Romans 12. One of the reasons you and I get in so much trouble is we try to know the will of God without surrendering to the will of God. Have you come to a place in a decisive way where you have come to the Lord and said, Lord, whatever you want for me, whatever you want for my life, whatever you want me to do, I don't know the answers to your will. I don't know the the questions you're going to ask me. I don't know what you're going to want me to do. But, Father, right now, I'm coming to you. I'm giving you my body. And I'm not going to do anything with my body because now my body belongs to you. It is yours to control. My life is yours to guide. And so, Father, I'm here and I present myself to you. And in just a moment, others may stand and sing and and worship, but you may just want to remain with your head bowed and just come to the Lord and consecrate your life to him. Say, Father, it's not mine, it's yours. Would you give it to him? you surrender your life to him dedicate your life to him that's the first step and maybe like like I've done so many times you've waited until you've had a decision before you got serious about reading God's word 
And maybe you realize, I need to renew my mind. I, I need to fill my mind with God's Word. I need to be studying that and learning that, and I haven't. And so right now you're between decisions, and that's what you need to do next. You just set your heart to become a man of the book, a woman of the book who, who feeds on God's Word and gets life from His Word. Jesus himself said, Men shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And then maybe you're at the point of decision-making right now. And what God has said about following your heart is a relationship with the Holy Spirit. Be honest with yourself. Don't be like me buying that VCR. Do you have a peace? Let the peace of God rule in your heart. This morning, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I'll be here and other pastors at the front. It would be our pleasure and our honor to introduce you to Jesus Christ and how you can have a relationship with Him. He died on the cross for your sins. Don't let your past life keep you from coming to Christ. He died to erase your sin, to carry it away to give you a new life. And so this morning, if you need to trust Christ, I can't think of a better time than Christmas to come and give your life fully to Christ. As he leads, let's respond to him.